Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johar Show podcast. Today on the pod, well, the latest as TransLink unveils a new rapid transit plan for Metro Vancouver. CEO Kevin Quinn joins us. Plus, we continue with our series, The Next Million, with nearly 4 million people living in the region by 2050. How do we police Metro Vancouver? 21 municipalities, 21 police chiefs. Is that really the best way to combat crime? That's all next on the Jazz Johar Show podcast. First, let's talk transit. TransLink has announced new routes that will anchor the planned new phase of its rapid transit expansion in the Lower Mainland. The proposed bus rapid transit, or BRT, routes will use higher capacity buses that use traffic signal priority and off-board fare collection to further speed up travel. Here is Brad West, Mayor of Port Coquitlam and the chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. Take a listen. The three new corridors being announced today have been selected to maximize people's access to rapid transit based on ridership potential, future housing and population growth projections, as well as strong support from mayors to bring these projects to their communities. That was Brad West speaking earlier today. Also at the press conference is Kevin Quinn, CEO of TransLink, who was there. Uh, Mr. Quinn, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So walk me through uh, the new routes that were announced and why were those particular routes chosen? Sure. So uh, the three routes that were selected to move forward uh, as Metro Vancouver's first new BRT routes uh, are King George Boulevard from Surrey Centre to White Rock, uh, Langley Centre to Haney Place, and Metro Town to the North Shore. Uh, and so we're really excited. I think we we all know those are those are three really important corridors. Uh, and you know our staff, you know, in working with the Mayor's Council, did a pretty rigorous analysis, really um, focusing on a, on a few things. You know, one is we wanted to select corridors that had high ridership potential, right? If we took a look at future housing and development growth projections. We took a, a really close look at, you know, what, what routes um, provide the best increasing uh, access to jobs? Uh, where can we easiest, uh, more easily implement these? You know, where could, because we're going to need to put in new transit priority infrastructure. And where do we have municipal support? That was really important to this as well. And so I think, you know, we've really, um, uh, the Mayor's Council has, has selected three really excellent corridors. You might recall that in our um, uh, Access for Everyone 10-year plan, we identified nine corridors regionally. And so this, this is really an effort to say, hey, let's take those nine, let's boil it down to the first three and, and really get going to provide some better transportation options to folks in the region. So in this case, the bus, buses have priorities. So in certain cases along these routes, uh, you'll lose a lane for uh, traffic, regular traffic. It'll be bus-only lanes? Well, I, you know, some of these corridors already have bus-only lanes. Uh, and in others, it, it may be uh, queue jumps. But, you know, I think part of the conversation here is, you know, that some of these routes will have uh, dedicated lanes. They'll have traffic signal priorities to provide fast and reliable service. And so uh, we do have limited space, but we've got to move a lot of people. We've got a, a, a really growing region. We have overcrowded transit service. And so we really need to take a look at how we um, make the most of the limited road space that we have. And so, 
you know, in identifying these three corridors, uh, it, it really begins the work in earnest of working with municipalities and working with the public to get uh, to nail down a concept design and an alignment for each of these corridors and, um, you know, begin to really nail down the details. I understand some communities are still concerned about losing bus lanes. Richmond was one of them. Yeah. I think there was talk of a Metrotown to Richmond Center uh, rapid uh, bus uh, route at one one time, and the city balked at losing a lane. I think it was in the Richmond area because of this. Uh, or some of are are community some communities articulating that concern. Yeah, I mean, I think you know many communities have concerns about you know um, how they get around every day, right? How their residents get around, how their kids get to school, and I think that we're of course you know sensitive to that. Um, the fact is that you know sitting here today, you know the announcement today was you know just saying, hey, these are three really important regional prior- uh, pri- priority corridors that need better service. Um, the fact is that the Im- the impact of implementing BRT on on road and on parking space will really vary between the corridors. And that's really going to be determined after we do further corridor level analysis and, and, and planning work. The intent is to build BRT on existing roadways as much as possible. But, you know, certainly, again, today's announcement is about starting that engagement to work really closely with communities and municipal councils every single step of the way. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, at this point, uh, in the midst of planning and building the Surrey Sky train line all the way out to actually Langley City, and of course the, the work is continuing along the Broadway corridor, and hopefully there'll be enough money or new money to eventually get that, that line all the way to UBC. Um, is the um, is TransLink and, and with, with the mayors looking at other routes after this in regards to where you would be sort of focusing your attention on in regards to new SkyTrain lines? And, and was that does that mean more lines in Surrey or perhaps the North Shore with an east-west route um, be next? Uh, let, walk me through what, what, what the future looks for in regards to SkyTrain over the next five to ten years. Sure. So, you know, our, our, uh, our game plan for the next ten years is laid out in our Access for Everyone 10-year priorities. And uh, I think what I'd stress first is that, you know, uh, the, the real thrust of that plan is a bus first approach. I, I think it's well recognized that we can roll out um, BRT and, and bus based systems faster and um, in a more cost effective way and uh, get, you know, help a lot more people more quickly um, with a bus first approach. And so, you know, a, a bus rapid transit, what we announced today is, is really going to be important. That said, you know, in that 10-year priority is once we've um, really begun implementation of rapid bus, uh, we can start to consider things like uh, a UBCX extension. Um, that is something that's, uh, that's always ongoing that we want to be sure to consider. We know that there's a lot of students that need to get out there. But right now, the focus is, is that we know our region's growing, and we think bus service, uh, and especially BRT, is the best way to get uh, that rapid service that people need today out there as fast as possible. And just to refresh uh, my memory and our audiences, and I know you talk, touched on this when you were last in studio, would you just walk me through where your, your the, the transit TransLink participation levels in regards to just commuters returning back to the system. Where are you right now in a post-COVID environment? Sure, yeah. So, you know, we sit here today probably around 88% uh, ridership return, close to 90 It kind of depends on the day. Uh, you know, so uh, we, we've come back pretty strong. That said, I, I think that number, you know, a lot of people will hear that and say, oh, it's not back to 100 percent. Well, that's compared to 2019 when TransLink ridership was increasing at a really dramatic rate. And the fact is, you know, if you're out on buses and SkyTrains every single day like I am, you know the system's crowded. Buses are packed. Our, our overcrowding is 
uh, worse than it was now uh, than in 2019. Um, people are waiting for buses. Uh, it, it, it is a system that is packed. Sky trains are packed. Uh, our system is quite busy. We're actually leading North America in ridership recovery. Our SkyTrain is fourth uh, in ridership in, in North American systems, uh, and our bus system is third. We are bursting at the seams, and uh, we know that people are looking for services like these bus rapid transit routes mm-hmm. uh, to, to get them where they need to go. And, and just to confirm here, uh, you know, the, we've talked about this as well, the existential challenge of falling uh, gas tax revenue. Uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, just the amount of growth that is required. I mean, somewhere along the way, your funding model has to change as well in regards to whether or not the provincial or federal government want to put in direct dollars into the system. But right now, you are, with the growth that you're seeing, eventually going to head to some sort of pretty significant structural deficit here. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think as it relates to today, you know, we're, we're trying to solve two problems at once. One, you've really identified well. You know, we have a we have a broken funding model. We know that that needs to be updated because we have escalating costs. We um, have reduced revenues. A lot of that is due to long-term declines in fuel tax revenue. As people switch to more energy-efficient vehicles, they switch to electric vehicles. At the same time, um, we need to be expanding. Our region's growing by 50, 60, 70,000 people every year, and we need solutions that keep people moving uh, quickly and rapidly. And so, uh, you know, what we're looking to do is work closely with um, with senior government, with the province, and with the federal government to help um, really tackle that uh, that that funding deficit. Um, it, it's really key to success, and uh, is going to be really important moving forward. Obviously, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate you making time for us uh, because it is an important issue for the region. That's for sure. Thank you so much. Sure, thank you, Jeff. Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, we were talking about transit, uh, and do please give me a call on the issue of the new bus rapid transit routes that have been announced. Some have said that shouldn't be the priority because they take away um, uh, routes and uh, bu- the bus lanes take priority over other vehicles, 604-331-2899. But as Kevin Quinn, the CEO of Transit, and I were speaking, of course, Mike uh, Farnworth, the Solicitor General, held a press conference uh, to announce that the BC government has appointed an administrative act in place of the Surrey Police Board and assist the city's uh, trouble transition from the RCMP to a municipal police force. Uh, Mr. Farnworth says that all members of the Surrey Police Board have been suspended and he's appointed former Abbots for Chief Constable Mike Sir as an administrator. Now, I'm told uh, as uh, um, Minister Farnworth was speaking, he was asked what he thinks the reaction would be from Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke. Take a listen. The mayor has uh, her views on on uh, on this transition, and uh, I've made it clear that the transition will continue. Uh, there are some outstanding issues that I'm particularly concerned about. Uh, for example, uh, budgeting uh, for this year and for the, the the coming year. And the best way to deal with that is to uh, to put in place an administrator, suspend the board, uh, and that's why it's being done. Uh, this is not a reflection on the uh, the board members, whom I think have worked incredibly hard and done uh, you know outstanding work. Uh, on what has been uh, a very challenging issue. Currently, right now, uh, a mayor is automatically on the police board and is automatically chair of the, the, the police board. So what's all this mean? This is a soap opera that's probably running longer than the days of our lives. Joining me now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, uh, what's this tell you? Well, this was flagged for us back in just a few weeks ago with the introduction of the amendments of, of, to the Police Act, 
which laid out section eight, uh, laid out a, a, a roadmap for the minister to basically suspend or fire the police board. In this case, they were suspended and appoint an administrator. So it was all laid out there. And in fact, it came up at the time when it was introduced. Questions were asked in the House about the, how this would work. So this is playing out exactly what appeared to have been predicted by this legislation. The problem uh, that we, we've been told is that there was basically paralysis of the budget-making process, and the clock is ticking. The budget has to be submitted by November 30th, and the board was not able to submit one, and not one that council necessarily agreed on. So now Mike Sear, the administrator, was basically the police board. One-man uh, army here. He has the power to draft his own uh, budget. This is the budget for the Surrey Police Services. He's got an experience as, as the former chief constable of the Abbotsford Police Force, so he can put together a police budget. That will go to the Surrey Council. If they reject it, it can be, be a bit of back and forth. But ultimately, also now, um, and this is not a new thing, it can come back over to Victoria. If, if uh, Mike's here and the council do not agree on the budget for Surrey Police Services, it comes back here for arbitration, uh, overseen by the Director of Police Services, which is under Mike Farnworth. So this effectively is a checkmate move to ensure Surrey Police Service has a budget that uh, is is adequate to, uh, to ensure that the process from RCMP to Surrey Police Service will continue and will become much more accelerated as a result. So the minister here says, I have the power to to uh, install somebody. I'm going to. He's going to give you the the budget that he thinks that is required. And as you said, uh, uh, he has a 33-year, uh, 33 years of experience, Mr. Sir does. And from in Abbotsford and in the city of Vancouver, the city certainly can comment on it. But if they don't like it, it will, whatever the reasoning, if it's, you can call it consultation, but ultimately it will be, uh, it will be approved either by the city council or or by the minister. This is a done deal. There's only so much uh, Brenda Locke or city council can complain about this. Yeah, and if they, if they cannot agree, as I say, there is an arbitration process that would be signed off by the director of police services who reports to Mike Farnworth. So uh, I think this basically is told city council, this is it. This is the budget. Um, you know, uh, if there's a disagreement, they can, they can go back and forth a little bit. But again, there's a time limit here. Only a, few, a couple of weeks left. Uh, so the time is of the essence. Sear has the experience, is, um, as you say, 33 years in policing. So he's going to be able to put together a budget fairly quickly. And that will clear the decks for Surrey Police Service to begin hiring officers at a fairly regular rate if they're available mm-hmm. and complete um, and smooth the transition from RCMP to SPS, which has basically been stuck in neutral. As mm-hmm. the, again, the two sides can't agree. I mean, if you look back at this, Keith, uh, do you think the provincial government, uh, uh, let's forget the municipal government of Doug McCallum at that time, do you think the provincial government moved too quickly in A, going ahead with this process when they should have said, hang on, let's look at this. What is your plan for the transition? What are the true costs? Which we never really got until uh, Doug McCallum lost the last election. And the board is a provincial board that's a, that's uh, appointed, and now it's been suspended, and I get that. Is this also not an acknowledgement, though, that the provincial government perhaps moved way too quickly in allowing the previous council to move ahead with this process in the first place? Oh, I suppose. I mean, but again, this is an unprecedented situation. I don't think anybody foresaw what some of the things that could happen, notably Surrey Council changing its mind halfway through the process. Um, Mm -hmm. It was one thing to approve a a council's original position um, and let it go forward. But then I don't think anyone 
anyone at all that I recall uh, seeing or saw the council flipping it, the switch and changing its mind and wanting to reverse everything. That was the glitch that occurred here, and no one had any experience with dealing with that. So, yeah, I guess uh, maybe everyone moved a little too quick here, but I don't think anybody could credibly have foresaw some of the problems that popped up here. Because, again, this is just an unprecedented situation. And in regards to the, the court action itself, I mean, that's still moving forward, am I correct? I, mean, I don't know if the government's actually responded yet to the allegations, uh, responded to what, what Surya said, but that's still, to your mind, from what you hear, still moving forward? Well, Surya is seeking a judicial review, um, but we haven't, the court's been very slow on this. Um, so we're not sure exactly where that's going to go, and we're not sure what today's announcement has, what impact, if any, that would have on that legal proceeding. But uh, this, is a, this is a major step. Again, it was flagged in the legislation a few weeks ago that this was a likely outcome because there just could not be agreement. And as a number of us sort of questioned farmers a few weeks ago whether this would happen, it certainly turns out it happened exactly as it was laid out. Keith, thank you. All right, take care. Welcome back to the show as we continue with our series, The Next Million. The series airs every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people and is expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. How we accommodate those new residents and how and how do we work, live and play in a region with a million more people? That's the question we're trying to answer. Now, recently we looked at the shortage of, our indu- of industrial land in Vancouver. We also looked at how we should govern the region with a million more people. And what does food security look like in the context of a region adding more people yet wants to protect its agricultural land? Well, today, today's topic will focus on policing. Now, how can we keep our community safe now and in the future? Safety and security matters today and when another million people live in Metro Vancouver as well. Now, policing enhances the well-being of communities and helps drive economic stability and growth. Some argue policing is at its second major inflection point since 9-11. The disruption, change and havoc that that ensued uh, from the lockdowns, the shift to virtual work and schooling, as well as the release of long-term COVID-19 restrictions and regulations has presented new priorities and challenges in law enforcement and public safety as well. Well, policing today still requires a focus on traditional street crime, but also must deal with a significant increase in cyber threats, domestic violence and counterfeit and fraud as well. Joining me now to discuss Policing in Metro Vancouver in 2050 is Rob Gordon. He's a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University. Rob, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure entirely. And I was just thinking, um, what wonderful timing this is, given the uh, the news today about Surrey. <laughs> now, I know you don't want to talk about Surrey, so. That's the last time I'll use the well, word. We we spent about uh, three thirty to four talking about Surrey, so I, I, we'll still talk about Surrey. I promise you that <laughs> because it, it's always there. It is, as I said, the longest running political soap opera since the days of our lives. I think. Um, but in the perfect world, let's start with the broader issue for a second. What should, in your mind, in a perfect world, policing look like in twenty fifty here in Metro Vancouver? In your mind, what what what, what, what do you see? Well, in Metro Vancouver, um, that, that's just one component. I'm thinking of the uh, the probability of change affecting British Columbia generally. And I think that might be a good starting point because um, it, it is, as you know, currently heavily policed by uh, the RCMP in one guise or another. Um, and that, I have no doubt, will change dramatically in the next 50 years. 
Um, and in fact, you see signals to that effect already um, in two major developments that have popped up. One, the outcome of the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia. Now, that sounds like it's got nothing to do with BC, mm -hmm. but in fact, it has everything to do with BC because it goes directly to the issue of the adequacy of the RCMP as a policing unit um, that can cover not national policing so much as provincial and municipal policing. It's just simply uh, fallen into that pit. And I, I think it's doing a good job now scrambling to get out of it because there is no future for the RCMP in municipal and provincial policing, in my view. Now, that's one major development. The second major development, and this is not unrelated, is, of course, the production of a, of a major report by the Provincial All-Party Committee of the Legislature. Now, I stress it's all-party, so I, ideally it should override uh, changes in the uh, in the legislature. But that that provincial uh, all-party committee was to review the Police Act, which is the governing legislation for policing and public safety in BC. And they produced uh, what I think is an excellent report, Transforming Policing and Public Safety in BC. That came out in April 2022. And the timing again was quite interesting because uh, that's not that far away from March 23, which was when the final report of the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia uh, was produced. Now, both of these documents are already starting to have an impact on policy and practice. Uh, and know that in BC, um, the changes to the Police Act have already started to unfold, unfold. Um, the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, has indicated that he's going to be introducing legislation in the spring, um, which is not that far away, uh, that will start the process of transitioning uh, from our current policing system, uh, which is not good, uh, to uh, a transformed model. Um, that has a number of components in it. It's a really excellent report, mm -hmm. well worth a read. So what's what's going to prevent us? What are the hurdles, what are the uh, obstacles right now in regards to getting to the point where, whether it's regional policing, provincial policing, whatever it may be, what do you see sort of as the immediate hurdles and forces that are going to say, no, this isn't the right way to go? <laughs> well, obviously, <laughs> judging by what's happened in, in Surrey, um, it's going to be, it's going to be some political opposition uh, on the part of, of uh, municipal politicians. Frankly, that model is getting ancient, and they really should back off. The mayors don't have, and the, most councillors don't have the expertise needed to be able to organise and administer police services in their jurisdiction. It, it's an embarrassment, and it's amazing to to see what happens. And people who view the situation in BC from afar uh, are astonished that this uh, system operates um, and how it operates. 
Uh, and, you know, we can see it's not very satisfactory, judging by what's happened in, in B.C. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Rob Gordon, professor of chronology at Simon Fraser University. We're looking at B.C. policing, specifically Metro Vancouver policing, as we add another million residents uh, to the region uh, by 2050. Now, Rob, you provided an excellent synopsis of, of where we need to go. Um, my question to you is, what if we get there? What would that police force look like? Uh, now, if you look at uh, policing today, as I said, you've got issues of cyber threats, domestic violence, counterfeit and fraud issues. But yet at the same time, the public still want a beat cop. They still, of course, need police officers to deal with traditional street crime. But they love the idea of, of seeing the officer walk the beat as well. If we were to have, let's say, move towards a regional police service, what would that look like? Would it be one police chief for the entire region? Would it be uh, one for south of the Fraser, one for north of the Fraser? How do you see a policing system that would work well for a region that is surrounded by mountains, uh, water, ALR? At the same time, it's a port city uh, with a, you know, a multi-ethnic population that has connections to all corners of the globe. How would you police this city in 2050? Ah, well, um, if it was my city to police, <laughs> um, there's a number of things I would do, but I don't think you really want to hear about that. Um, it, it's certainly not impossible. Um, it's a daunting task because of all the variables you've just mentioned, but there are different models or different styles of policing that have been in place for a long time and that are followed in other jurisdictions. Um, that we can that we can learn from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, just a quick example. Uh, clearly, we need a federal a police service of some kind. Um, I don't think the RCMP is uh, suitable in its current form to do that. It's got way too many management problems. Um, but uh, most certainly, um, you would have a federal. Uh, jurisdiction um, that has to be policed, and so uh, that would you know, continue on a national basis. So there would be a national police service of some kind, similar to the uh, FBI, something like the FBI. Then, well, not exactly, but uh, I mean that's a, an unfortunate comparison. Um, but yeah, I mean it would be concerned primarily uh, uh, with. Um, national issues like uh, immigration and uh, cybercrime and major fraud, um, those kinds of uh, border integrity, those kinds of uh, issues that partly now currently dealt with by the RCMP. Um, But uh, they're also hampered by uh, the need to patrol, patrol city streets and and uh, police provinces that won't work that that combination just simply has created too many problems so um you're going to have a national police service that uh, is concerned with a, a range of national uh, crimes or crimes that are national in in uh, scope they include drug enforcement um they include various forms of commercial crime. All of these things are uh, national in scope, will have to be dealt with uh, by a national police service. Then 
you bring it back down to uh, the provinces, or if you don't want to go with the province, and I think you don't have much choice because of the way that budgets are structured, but you can have a provincial police service that is responsible for policing areas that lie outside of the major cities. Um, so Greater Victoria or Metropolitan Victoria, Metropolitan Vancouver would have their own uh, or related uh, regional police services that are doing everyday policing, um, including uh, community policing, um, and possibly also even uh, having a, a regional police service like that for the Okanagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, much will depend on the growth of the population uh, over the next few years. I certainly would prepare for three regional police services. Um, I would also look at the issue of how you structure and operationalize remote policing and rural policing. These are two different but related uh, concepts. Um, uh, so remote policing, uh, you know, would, would entail covering uh, thinly populated areas that are mountainous, um, that are uh, marine in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, the provinces would be dealing with that, but also dealing with rural policing, which is something separate from remote policing. We've got about a minute uh, left. I just wanted to ask one final question. We did not a lot of time. Where does the Surrey decision, let's just say we continue with the, the municipal police force as the, the Solicitor General uh, says that's where we're headed. Yep. What role does that decision, uh, uh, what will happen once Surrey does move that that move towards the Surrey Police Service? What will that mean in regards to a catalyst towards a regional system? What does this, what does the Surrey announcement, the Surrey decision mean in that broader regional policing conversation? Well, I hope it doesn't have any impact because uh, it's way too politicized. And I've been very concerned about the encroachment of politics on policing. The two really don't mix. They should not mix. Um, So you need to sweep the floor um, in order to get a clearer picture and a cleaner start to this. I mean, it's not going to be harmful in any way, but Uh, I would envisage that sometime in the next few years uh, there will be a Metropolitan Police Service for Metro Vancouver and another one for Victoria. These are already, you know, been heavily discussed. Um, That's going to move the players around a bit more on the sorry side of things. Um, But I'm hoping that it won't, uh, it won't cause too much disturbance um, <laughs> because it's kind of, it, I mean, it contaminates everything. That is the problem. Yes, the it stuff. does. It keeps reporters and talk show hosts busy as well. Rob, we've run out of time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Lots there in regards to chew over to discuss. I really appreciate your time today. You're more than welcome, guys.
David Lay is a professor emeritus of geography at UBC. In 2010, uh, Mr. Lay wrote Millionaire Migrants, which looked at foreign investment in Vancouver's real estate market. Now, on Monday, he was on the show talking about his new book, Housing Booms in Gateway Cities. The, the book looks at how Vancouver and other global cities handled the influx of foreign cash over the past decade and the lessons to be learned uh, from their experience. Now, in a nutshell, cities like Vancouver, Hong Kong, London, Sydney, uh, and Singapore are disproportionately impacted by real estate uh, investment. And those are the five cities uh, that Mr. Lay focused on in the book. Only one of them doesn't have a housing crisis. It's Singapore. Why? Well, take a listen to what they did in that city, according to Professor Lay. Singapore, in many ways, is, is a quite unique city-state. From the beginning, a decision was made that everybody would be, every Singaporean would be a homeowning stakeholder in the country. So after independence, government controlled all of the land so, so that the land is all publicly owned and developed the, a housing program where they were the major supplier. A government agency was the major supplier of housing that was leased to Singaporeans for 99 years. So that's one response, which is using government land to build housing. One, what you're going to argue, well, what about personal property rights or systems are different? So be it. But I just wanted to lay out that one argument Mr. Lay made. Here is a second comment uh, he made in regards to why Singapore has been successful, and that comes down to that community's foreign buyer's tax. Take a listen. Here in BC, we've had a 15 and then 20% tax on foreign buyers uh, for some years now. Well, in Singapore, uh, this spring, they increased that foreign buyer's tax to 60%, six zero. And, and not, not only that, but if you're a Singaporean, again, as of this spring, this is a tax that has been constantly rising over the years. Uh, this spring, uh, for purchase of a second property by a Singaporean, a 25% tax was introduced. So, as Professor Lay said, a foreign buyer's tax that is now at 60%, six zero from uh, compared to what we have here in British Columbia, which is 20%, and even local investors, if they buy a secondary a second property, it would be a 25% uh, buyer's tax. Joining me now to talk a little bit about how Singapore handled housing uh, investments and whether or not we can get away with some of the things they implemented in that city uh, is Michael Geller. He's president of the Geller Group, architect, he's a planner and a real estate consultant. Welcome, Michael. Jazz, one of the things I love about coming in your show is you never tell me what we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, I, I broadly want to talk about foreign buyers tax and tax and what we can do. I don't pretend that you're going to have all the answers. That that would be impossible for any one person. Uh, but I, I, you heard my interview um, with yes. Professor Lay on Monday, and we talked about Hong Kong, London, Sydney, Australia, and Singapore, and of course, Vancouver. Um, your thoughts first and foremost, could we get away with any of what Professor Lay has mentioned here in regards to our system, not only just politically, and but also Vancouver and British Columbia culturally, can we get away with what uh, Professor Lay was recommending for this city? 
You know, by way of history, if you go back 60, 70 years, the Canadian government built quite a lot of housing. Mm -hmm. Indeed, what we call public housing, and there's quite a few public housing projects in Vancouver, they were being built across the country. Many of the people involved in building those homes were from England because England had a great tradition of building what they called council flats. And indeed, a lot of the British population lived in government housing. And it's interesting that in the last 50 years, the governments have slowly moved away, selling off those projects. And in Canada, we moved away from the government building housing to allowing nonprofit groups, the Kiwanis, the Lions Club, different groups like that to build <laughs> because it was felt that was a better solution. Now, there are other places like Singapore that have had heavy government involvement. Many people talk about the city of Vienna in Austria, which has a tremendous history of building government housing. But it is interesting. When times are good, most people want to see the government get out of the housing business. <laughs> and when times are difficult, and they are right now, mm -hmm. more and more people want it. And indeed, yesterday, Vancouver City Council voted to start making city-owned lands available for housing and to sort of reinvigorate their Vancouver Affordable Housing Agency. Mm -hmm. So I think I think there there's some interest. But as for the degree of taxation, I have a feeling that's not something people want to see. I would point out, though, that when people do invest in second homes and third homes, if they make money on those homes, they do pay a capital gains tax yes. on any lift. So we do have something like that. Uh, with these local investors, as, as, as Professor Lay was saying, a 25% tax on a secondary home, uh, in the case here, people who do invest, and in most cases, not always, but most cases, those are uh, rented out eventually to a local population. In fact, the last uh, item that you and I discussed the last time I was in the studio was somebody calling, complaining about investors and foreign investors. And I said, well, before you're too critical, mm -hmm. remember, most of the homes that they do own are occupied by people who are born in Vancouver or born in Canada. So, yes. And indeed, I just saw an article today on five reasons why we should be encouraging rather than discouraging investor housing development. Because without the investors, a lot of housing projects just simply won't go ahead. Just won't get built. Um, it was interesting with what uh, Professor Lee was saying. He doesn't ever think uh, we're ever going to get to the point uh, to housing being so affordable to the point where when he first started as a, as a I think he was as a young professor at UBC yeah. where he could almost afford a home on his salary at that time. Um, is it just the nature of open societies like Canada, like the UK, like Australia? We have an open society. We have a free enterprise society and culture that it's very difficult for government to any level of government to really bring down housing costs in a significant manner. A, because our system actually doesn't allow that because it's a free and open system. Two, I would argue no politician ever is going to get elected with the term, elect me, I promise to reduce your housing costs by 40% baby boomer and Gen Xer. Or put another way, and we could invite your callers, your listeners to call in, how many of you listening right now would like to see the government reduce the value of your home? The yeah. home that you bought with a lot of effort to see that reduced by half. 
Yeah. Because ultimately, if we're going to significantly reduce the cost of new housing, effectively, we'll be bringing down the cost of all the existing housing. And that's why I had to agree entirely with David Lay. It's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. The other thing here in Vancouver, this continues to be a very desirable place to live. I was at a presentation last night on the federal government's efforts to increase the supply of housing. They want to build 5.8 million new homes over the next seven years. That's about four times the number of homes we've built in the last four years or 10 years. And indeed, Vancouver or British Columbia would get a larger percentage of that. Unfortunately, it won't happen. It won't happen. But... It, it, there's no doubt that we do need a lot more housing. But as I often tell people, Jazz, even if the land is free and you just have to pay for the construction and the various fees and architects, it's still not terribly affordable housing. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and real estate consultant. We were talking about an interview we did on Monday. It was an extended interview with David Lay, professor emeritus of geography at UB, uh, UBC. We talked about gateway cities and and how uh, they've had to deal with the deal with the influx of foreign investment and how um, that foreign investment disproportionately impacts real estate in those communities. And Professor Lay, uh, who's written two books on this issue, has basically said. Vancouver hasn't done well. Hong Kong hasn't done well. London hasn't done well. Sydney, Australia hasn't done well. One city has done well, or at least a lot better than the other four that I've just mentioned. That's because of, A, they've used public lands to build homes. And secondly, there is a foreign buyer's tax and a local buyer's tax, foreign tax of 60%. And if uh, you're a Singapore resident and you buy a second property, perhaps an investment property, it's a 25% uh, buyer's tax there as well. I'm wondering, should we be considering the same? I know the systems are different. The cultures are different, uh, as um, uh, Michael was saying as well. But I'm very curious as to think, what can we do to make housing as affordable as possible in the city? 604-280-9898. Let's go to Hardy in Langley. Hi, Hardy. Hi, thanks for taking my call, and I always enjoy Michael Geller on your show. Uh, He has great insight. I think one of the problems he alluded to was, like, even if the land was given for free, I work in the construction industry, uh, concrete specifically, and the price of concrete has gone up just astronomically in the last couple of years. And the free land's not going to change that. And a lot of the job sites that I attend to, the big ones, there's a lot of labor that's from Mexico. And so if you're going to have more construction sites, you're going to have to get more laborers coming in. they got to stay somewhere. And the costs are not going to go down. We're in a bad situation of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. I'm just a person. I don't understand all the economics of it. But you have two competing things going on, the need for more public subsidized housing, and you have the free market as well. Like, I'm a homeowner. I own a freestanding home. I don't want my value to go down, but my son, he lives in Beijing. He has no interest in coming back to Vancouver because his quality of life will go down. So there's a real tug and pull there, and I don't know what the solution is. It's It's gone on for so long that the solution is no quick fix. It's going to take a lot of time, but hopefully... Artie, thank you for your call. Really appreciate it. Really good points you're making there, and I think I think he nails it. We've taken a very long time to get into this mess, federally, provincially, municipally, mm-hmm. whatever, whoever you want to blame. 
it's going to take a while. No matter what political leader, municipally, provincially, or federally says, it's going to take time before we are able to get beyond this point when, to get back to some sort of affordability. And Hardy makes an interesting point because I was just reading an article today by Claire Wilson talking about the fact we're actually losing construction workers mm-hmm. in British Columbia. They're moving to Alberta. Why? Not because there isn't work here. There's tons of work here. But the housing is too expensive for the construction workers. Yeah. So they're leaving. Yeah. I, Chris Gardner from ICBA was here a few weeks ago for the next million. He was talking about that as well. All right. Let's go to James in White Rock. Hi, James. Hi, Jess. Thanks for taking my car. call. Peter, I love listening to you. I'm a builder, and I just sent a 10-man crew to Alberta specifically because my guys can't afford to live here. So building affordable housing is going to be pretty hard when you haven't got anybody to build it. And the second thing is, when is the province going to be honest with the people that are coming here and let them know that British Columbia is now going to become a renter's state where people aren't going to be able to afford to buy a house and if they come here, they have to come to the conclusion when they move in here, they are never going to own property. They are never going to be able to afford it. And and they have to earn a certain amount of money to actually live here in the property that exists. James, thank you for your call. I think he's got a point there. <laughs> he's got a number of points. But, you know, you have to be a bit optimistic. Yeah. And ultimately, there are ways that we can make housing a little bit more affordable without dramatically reducing the cost of all and value of all the existing housing. But we do have to do something about it because otherwise he's quite right. If there's no one here to build the affordable housing that the government wants, we're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, thank you for your time. My pleasure. App-based ride-hailing and food delivery gig workers will soon have better working conditions with new protections, including basic employment standards, according to the B.C. government. Now, when you're uh, out and about, uh, I certainly notice this when I uh, leave uh, the studio every day, uh, the significant amount of food delivery workers uh, here in in this city alone. In fact, in British Columbia, 11,000 ride-hailing drivers, that's how many there are, 27,000 food delivery workers in our province. There are 21 ride-hailing companies, there are seven food delivery platforms operating in BC. And according to a um, a poll done by Research Co. in February of 2021, 32% of people in BC reported having food delivered to their home at least once every two weeks. These food delivery apps are part of daily modern life, but uh, the protection hasn't always been there uh, for many of these gig workers. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this pending legislation is Harry Baines, BC's Minister of Labour. Minister Baines, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Uh, important work here, an important conversation to have because this is, uh, we go, you take all of this for granted, uh, you know, most days when I leave this studio, as I said, you see all these uh, workers out and about, skip, from Skip the Dishes to Uber Eats, oh, in and around here, just delivering food. Um, how would you protect uh, the rights in legislation, in reg- rights of these workers in regards to employment and in regards to their wages? Walk me through what this, the new rules will look like. Yeah, so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there are more and more people actually doing work through app-based companies, uh, whether they are ride hail or, or food delivery. And we have all accustomed to, to, to that kind of a service. And, and, and just as so you know, our, our employment laws were created when the traditional employer-employee relationship existed. You go to work uh, for a employer 7 o'clock in the morning, you have your cup, couple of coffee breaks, lunch break, and you come home at 3.30. Same employer, time and time, day and day again, and you know, sometimes for the entire life. 
But I think the economy is changing. Uh, the work places are changing, and uh, uh, our laws have not kept up uh, to to provide the basic protection that all other workers enjoy in in, in BC. And uh, so, th- for that reason, uh, it's a based on the engagement that we had uh, with the workers, with the with the platform companies for the last months and, and I guess over a year. Mm-hmm. And four or five areas were identified by the workers. Okay, one was that. They didn't even know whether they were making minimum wage, uh, and then the second one was they weren't sure whether they whether they will be covered for, with the, under the workers' compensation if they are injured at workplace or become ill due to the workplace uh, work that they're doing, and also you know they are required to bring their own car, their own vehicle, to perform that work, and uh, they were not paid. Uh, for the work-related costs that they incur in order to provide the service that we are, we are, we are, you know, we, we enjoy, and also uh, there was no fair process uh, when they were when their app was suspended, and for them to put their side to justify whether you know, <clears throat> they, you know, their the, the suspension was justified or not. So those are the area we are addressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on the wages side, uh, we're saying that. Uh, uh, these workers will have 120% of the minimum wage that we have in British Columbia that exists today, 1675, and they will get 20% more, recognizing that sometimes they have to wait uh, for the next assignment. So that will compensate part of that. So just based on that, that would mean uh, the minimum wage in this province, as you say, is 1675. So you would make about $20.10 an hour. Uh, based on the current wage. So that would be your minimum wage. So if you don't make a delivery, uh, whatever it may be, so the company, let's say Skip the Dishes or Uber Eats, would be responsible to make sure that you are minimum making $20 an hour. Yeah, I think their pay period would be um, two weeks. And if uh, their earnings fall short of a minimum wage in BC or less than 120%, then the company will make up the difference. And then also... Uh, we will require these uh, <clears throat> platform companies to uh, register uh, their employees with the workers' compensation uh, so that if they are injured or become ill at work, that they would be covered for lost wages, for health care, for rehabilitation, and, and a return to work, those type of benefits, just like other workers are. And uh, also there will be some uh, method of determining how they would be paid for work-related costs uh, vis-a-vis their uh, gas, their their car, you know, uh, expenses. So I think there will be that part covered as well. And also that they will be given uh, every two weeks uh, itemized, um, you know, statement of earnings and deductions. And uh, so I think that, you know, we need to create a pay transparency there as well. Uh, Right now, as you may know, that... uh, customer uh, who takes, say, for example, one of these platform companies don't know uh, how, how much their, their uh, driver is going to get paid, the fare that they're paying, and the, and the driver don't know how much fare the customer paid, and also uh, how much tip was left behind. So we would be protecting their tips as well. So the tips will be on top of 120% that we are proposing. So uh, now the BC Federation of Labor, I think I said they, they, they're, they're supportive of, of, of the legislation, but they say uh, that um, it does fall short to a certain degree because uh, uh, the, the delivery workers won't be guaranteed pay for the time they spend waiting for the next assignment. What do you say to that? 
Yeah, so I think once the legislation is introduced and passed, uh, which will happen within the next two weeks, uh, because that's the, the window we have right now under this uh, session, and then uh, my ministry will engage the, the, uh, the platform companies and the workers and their representatives and develop some regulations. And uh, that's how we would come. I think regulations should be ready by early next year. Now, the difficulty, again, as I said before, the uniqueness of this work and this, this sector is, for example, if they're waiting for the next assignment, assignment who is responsible for that time? Uh, they may pick up Uber next time or, or, or a Lyft the, the next time. So I think those are some of the complexities that exist in this type of work. So we need to work through it. Again, I have said earlier today, I said this is a first step. We will monitor going forward and see if uh, this, these laws that we are bringing in uh, are up to par to make sure that the workers are getting what we believe they should, they should be getting under the law. And if there are some uh, gaps and the, and, the, and the platform companies identify some of the gaps uh, that may make it difficult for them to operate in here, I think we will look at it at that time. Uh, is any other jurisdiction uh, or does any other jurisdiction have the, uh, the legislation that you are talking about today? Uh, or is there a legislation that you've looked at or any jurisdiction that you say, you know, this is the kind of stuff we want to emulate, we want to be doing what that jurisdiction is doing? Or is this relatively new for Canada and, and for, let's say, Western sort of uh, Western nations? I think, you know, uh, we will be the first jurisdiction to come up with uh, – uh, labor laws and, and regulations uh, to uh, to legislate um, this type of uh, uh, work, um, this sector work. I think others have tried, and uh, for example, Toronto, Minnesota, and California, and many had to withdraw or uh, redo it again and again. And I think we would be. I'm fairly confident that because we have worked with the with the, uh, the platform companies for the last year or so, and the workers. Of course, the worker side are saying it may not be enough, and the companies, some of them have said, you know, we've gone too far in some of the areas. So I think we need to, uh, let's set up the baseline and basic minimum standards as far as the Employment Standard Act is concerned, and at the same time, the workers' compensation, their health and safety prevention. So then we'll monitor, and uh, I think we are the first jurisdiction, uh, and I'm quite confident that we will be successful. Do, do you, uh, in the, as you said here, your your focus is on the drivers uh, who you feel do not have uh, the rights and the protection that traditional a traditional job would. Uh, do you worry by adding this legislation that this also mean it, it'll lead to higher prices? Uh, I think DoorDash um, uh, has already been saying that, look, you're setting a premium, there'll be a higher minimum wage for for a group of workers, ultimately, this will make it more expensive. This may lead to less business for restaurants and fewer earnings for opportunities for workers, just because of the increased costs that government is adding through this legislation, including um, the, the the paying above minimum wage. What do you say to that argument? Yeah, you know, when uh, when we welcome these companies to British Columbia to provide the services and create jobs here, uh, one of the things they were reminded that we have uh, labor laws, and uh, this is British Columbia, Canada, 2023, that we don't believe uh, any worker should be left behind when it comes to basic minimum protection, when it comes to the basic minimum uh, minimum wage, for example, and the workers' compensation, health and safety. And uh, uh, when we were talking to these companies, they recognized that. And generally speaking, they said, yes, minimum standards are needed 
and they encourage government to come up with the record, with, 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 with the minimum standards uh, so that it creates a level playing field among themselves at the same time know exactly how each one of them should be treating their their, their workers and the workers will have protection. So the idea here, Jess, is that we want to make sure that the workers enjoy the basic minimum standards. At the same time, we preserve the jobs that these companies bring in and the services the customers are so accustomed to now. And so I think this is the, the this is these are the areas that we want to address to make sure that everyone can uh, certainly uh, enjoy the services that we have and the workers enjoy the basic minimum standards. Minister, uh, good to hear your voice. Haven't talked to you in a while. Uh, have yourself a good afternoon and good evening, and we'll chat very soon. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Well, an art gallery in Vancouver's Gastown said it was targeted by a planned smash and grab that has left them without a $20,000 sculpture. The gallery, George, is located on West Hastings Street. These got away with a massive 200-pound bronze horsehead sculpture. Was the theft planned? Teresa Mura is the art gallery's director. She joins us now. Teresa, thank you for your time today. Great to be here. Uh, walk me through uh, what you know and what, what transpired over the last 24 hours. Uh, yes, I actually uh, originally got um, a call from a lady that was on the street witnessing somebody try to break into the gallery. I'm very grateful to that person. Um, and she yelled at him, and he went away. Apparently, we did call the police, and uh, nobody was there. They said everything was secured, nothing was broken. And then 15 minutes later, my security company called, and this is about 8 p.m. now on Tuesday, and said that the... Um, uh, uh, the glass break alarm had gone off. Unfortunately, the power was out on the entire block, so I couldn't get into my camera to see what was going on live. So I did call 911. Um, they were dispatched, and they did find the front door um, smashed in with a sledgehammer. They actually left the sledgehammer there, um, which Forensics has now. Um, they got in, and the only thing that they stole out of the entire gallery and exhibition and equipment. It was a beautiful bronze life-size uh, horse head um, by the artist Richard Forbes, who has a foundry um, in Langley. The piece itself is um, worth 19,500. It weighs easily over 300 pounds. Mm -hmm. So this was definitely orchestrated. Um, for us to even get it into the gallery, with the artist, we had a hydraulic type of dolly that was a lift system where we rolled it into the pedestal and lifted it up to the height of the pedestal, and then it took three strong um, gentlemen to slide it over onto the pedestal. Mm -hmm. So to get it out, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, they would have had to do basically the same thing. That, took, that, that would take tremendous amount of planning then. Exactly. And I don't think they'd be rolling it down the street. So, you know, perhaps there's a car right there as well. Mm -hmm. um, have you had uh, challenges of uh, just vandalism and, and crime like many businesses uh, in Vancouver? Absolutely. Um, we were located in East Vancouver prior to moving to um, 140 West Hastings in March. And yes, both locations um, have had trouble with that, vandalism, um, all sorts of different things, windows being broken. Uh, it's just, it's very, very frustrating for business owners, especially 
you know, small independents like myself <laughs> that, you know, wearing 12 different hats, you know, the only person running the show. It's very disheartening, you know. Yeah. It really is. Um, it, now, in this case, uh, you you want people to know, obviously, that that this um, robbery occurred. Uh, Lori, of course, being yes. that these individuals are trying to be try to sell this uh, bronze um, uh, horse head. Then, yes, it could be two different things. It could be that they're trying to sell it, um, you know, to a buyer, a black market, something like that. Um, or the other would be as they think that they can melt down the bronze and get some money for it. So. Uh, even if they go to a scrap dealer, they're not going to get much money for it. Um, the price of the piece is all the hours and efforts of the artist making the mold for that beautiful sculpture. And then the process of actually casting it as well uh, takes so much time and so much detail. But when you take the bronze cast itself, and if they think they're going to melt it down, they're not going to get much money for it. Hmm. Is there, uh, have you had to deal with, uh, you know, organized attempts at, at stealing artwork from your gallery before? I have not. And I know other galleries, like on South Granville, one even got robbed twice, you know, mm-hmm. by the same guy <laughs> during business hours. So it's crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there anything you think you will do differently? I mean, you obviously have a security system. Uh, you know, you've you, you, you've done what you could. Is there anything else you think you could have done in regards to uh, dealing with something like this, stopping something like this? Yeah, well, we do have the camera security system. Again, when the <laughs> the power went out, now I I know that I need to get a, a battery pack uh, backup for that uh, camera. Apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not have the funds, but now we are doing a GoFundMe uh, to replace the glass door and to purchase um, and install scissor security gates on all the windows and the front doors. Mm-hmm. So okay. we're really hoping that um, people hear our story and they're able to reach out and help so that we can continue with Gallery George because we support local established and emerging artists here in BC and throughout Canada. And, you know, I don't want that to stop. I want to continue. Yeah, what we're doing. Uh, and what is the uh, the name of the GoFundMe account so just people would know if they wanted to donate? Um, I believe it was um, when I set it up. It's under my personal name, Teresa Mira, uh, but with the logo of the Gallery George and the email of the Gallery George. Okay, so it would be T H E R E S A Teresa Mura M U R A. And it's the gallery, correct. George. Excellent. You yes. know, and, and uh, you know, uh, you'd have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but the province did announce that they have opened up an, uh, uh, a fund for small business owners to apply for to have their doors replaced, uh, potentially, uh, that have been vandalized. So you may want to look into that with your local MLA there. But there is a fund that they did create. I know we talked to the minister about that a few months ago. So there is something you mm-hmm. can apply for there as well because uh, we would hate to see um, your gallery and many other small businesses go away because you're so vital to the community. Absolutely. And, you know, we've, we just had three more businesses on our block close, um, which is devastating. Wow. What kind of businesses were they? Uh, One was the Turquoise Goat, which is a games and cocktail place. Mm -hmm. Another was um, um, the warehouse, the furniture warehouse, which was a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And one is, which I will not announce, one is due to close soon. Wow. 
What yeah. do you, I mean, is it, is it just the, uh, you know, since you raised this issue, is it just the crime issue? Is it lack of people not coming downtown as much as before? Is it COVID? Like, is it just, yeah. or our routines are different post-COVID? I mean, what do you think is causing all this or is it all of the above? Um, maybe all of the above. Um, we do have good walk-by traffic. Um, you know, we're between Camby and Abbott, but anything east of Abbott, you know, it just, it, you don't go there. And another thing, too, with tourism, we do have a lot of tourists, but um, all the tour guides from cruise ships, et cetera, tell them don't go past the steam clock. So I've um, working with the BIAs, both Gastown and Hastings Crossings, uh, which I'll be on, the, on their board soon as well, mm-hmm. um, and repeating the frustration that I hear when I do talk to tourists and they come in and they're like, we're told not to go past the steam clock. Well, that just really impacts so many businesses, you know, in Gastown and Hastings Crossing, Chinatown, everything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then on top of that, you know, you do see the people on the street and they're openly smoking drugs and slumped over in front of the gallery and other businesses, and that really impacts us horribly, you know, let alone the mess that they leave behind. Yeah. Uh, Teresa, I know it's a difficult period, especially just after um, this um, this theft occurring, but I really appreciate you um, making time for us and our audience and making sure we get the word out. It's very important that we also actually talk about this and hopefully somewhere the, along the way find some solutions for, for, for Vancouver because uh, it's, it's not a good thing for any community when you start losing businesses or like yourself having yeah. to deal with this theft and and um, uh, vandalism as well at, um, at uh, your gallery. So thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.